Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined as always by Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. So we had snow this week, and that has now melted, at least where I am. But the markets have been pretty hot until uh, the, the latter end of this week, enough to melt a bit of value somewhere possibly. But uh, let's uh, start by talking about what's happened in the main market this week. Son. Well, the market uh, in terms of the investment companies sector will finish in positive territory this week. Uh, there have been stronger weeks, it's fair to say, but somewhere in the region of between 03 and 0.5% uh, in positive territory, the uh, the FTSE All Share, so the wider UK market, uh, probably do a little bit better, probably end up about a half a percent or so on the week. In terms of the sector average discount, it's kind of hovering around about a 2% level or so. So this is quite a historically narrow level. Uh, just to remind you, it started the year about 1.8% uh, and it's fluctuated a little bit around there, but still discounts uh, although there are pockets of value, uh, the discounts remain pretty tight. But yeah, it's been, a, 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 as always, an interesting week in, in, in the marketplace. Clearly a little bit of hesitancy, given where we are in terms of mutant variants of the coronavirus uh, and probably possibly some bad news about uh, people's holiday plans for the summer. But always plenty to digest. Yes, I think that seems to be a question that's on a lot of people's mind. Are they going to be able to go on holiday this year? Or at least are they going to be able to go abroad on holiday? That seems to be more of a... Uh, an issue. Obviously, a lot of debate in government about that. But we're going to stick to uh, more Monday matters of uh, what's happening in the global financial markets, which remain open, of course, unlike the countries in which they are listed often. So we're going to start as normal with a quick review of corporate activity and announcements. Let's start with, uh, well, we can't not start with our old favourite, Gabelli Value Plus Plus, uh, GVP, the one we keep coming back to, the trust that won't die. And uh, yet it seems to be maybe we have made a bit of a breakthrough this week on this one, Simon. Well, it would appear to be so. Um, this week that the company have announced that we have another continuation vote, uh, and this one will be held in July. And that will be followed by a special resolution uh, to place the fund into members' voluntary liquidation. Now, the key difference at this time is that the largest shareholder associated capital group which of course has connections to the investment manager, has agreed to abstain from voting on both re resolutions. So in other words, they won't stand in the way uh, of uh, the fund moving into a managed wind-down situation. The board have agreed not to return any capital prior to that general meeting in July. And just to remind people, back in January, they put the threat on the table uh, that they would uh, put a, a continuation vote. And if that wasn't successful, they'd put a tender offer and mentioned a figure of about £97 million. So that would have left the fund, had they been successful in that, in, in quite a small position and uh, all kinds of tax issues would have arisen as a result. So the, the threat seems to have been taken seriously. Associated Capital Group uh, look like they're prepared to play ball. And we will find out in July whether this fund will eventually, as you say, slump off into the sunset. Well, I suppose one should be quite encouraged that it, when it comes to a showdown between the board and indeed backed by shareholder votes and a management company that the board and the shareholder vote has in the end, it looks like it might be respected. Of course, this meeting isn't happening until July, which is about what, five months from now. So they, that seems to be one of the concessions that the board's probably made, that they're going to allow the Gabelli uh, value team or the management company associated capital group to 
go on earning a few shillings until that point. But uh, is that's pretty unusual, is it not? I mean, it wouldn't take normally that long. It does take quite a long time to get these meetings and votes organised. I have to say, I know that from personal experience, but that does seem quite a long time, five months, doesn't it? Yeah, I'd agree. And I think that's probably a kind of key part of the deal. I mean, Associated Capital Group have come out and they've said, well, you know, look how well Gabelli Value Plus Plus has performed since uh, July last year. Um, you know, so they're already pointing to the fact that the track record has, has picked up. So one suspects that they are prepared to kind of fight their corner. Uh, so although they've agreed that they won't uh, participate in terms of the vote, one suspects that they will be on the front foot in terms of pointing out the, the merits of the fund and the strategy. But just to remind people, the, the, the continuation vote that we saw uh, last year, we had about 66% of shareholders vote against the continuation. So essentially, when you strip out associated capital group from who were obviously in favour of the fund uh, continuing, there would have to be quite a change in the shareholder base's opinion in order to keep this one going, one suspects. Yes, I must say I had forgotten, or perhaps I just didn't know, uh, that the reason that uh, Associated Capital Group ended up with this 27% shareholding in the trust is because when they did the IPO back in 2015, they only raised 100 million. They were actually having to raise more. And so they'd committed uh, to invest in the trust themselves. And instead of ending up with about 10%, I think is what they planned, that's how they ended up with 27 or whatever, 25 or whatever it is. And so therefore, that's quite interesting in a way. I mean, because that sort of raised an issue. We quite liked, we say, we like to say that we like to see the managers, you know, having skin in the game, having a, a stake in the thing they're managing, so it aligns their interests somewhat with the rest of the shareholders. But I guess you can have too much of a good thing. Would that be the lesson we draw from that particular uh, set of circumstances? Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, you're absolutely right. We, we've seen a number of um, IPOs whereby a cornerstone uh, investor, maybe the fund manager themselves or someone very closely connected to the fund manager, has been prepared to, to back the thing to get it away. But it can work both ways. I mean, the whole skin in the game argument you know, has had a lot of traction across the investment company space. And it's essentially been directed, as you know, at investment trust directors and what are their own personal holdings uh, in the investment trust in question. I think most people would agree one would expect to see investment trust directors uh, be prepared to eat their own cooking, so to speak, to have a personal shareholding. However, I've yet to see the research or the evidence that suggests that uh, you know, directors or even investment manager having high stakes in the company is a, is a necessary a guarantee of outperformance. Uh, I don't think that the, the, the correlation is there, frankly. So you're right; it can it can absolutely work both ways. Uh, certainly not a guarantee. I would agree about that. I think that's fair to say. I mean, obviously, it, uh, I suppose one issue is many investment managers certainly leaving aside boards. Most investment managers probably run other funds as well. Uh, and what you really want to see is you want to see them having a larger stake in perhaps the investment trust than they do in the open-ended funds. But uh, that's an issue perhaps we can come back to another day. It's an interesting argument, this whole skin in the game issue. In principle, it sounds wonderful, but uh, maybe there are some issues around it as well we should uh, bear in mind. So it looks like we're probably going to say goodbye to Gabelli Value Plus Plus. And uh, what about the situation at Alternative Credit Investments, ACI? which is another trust which we perhaps may be saying farewell to, at least in its uh, current uh, makeup. Yeah, that's right. And, and it's one that we've been talking about for um, quite some time, it feels. Uh, just to remind people, this used to be Pollen Street Secured Lending. Uh, Waterfall Asset Management came out uh, at some stage last year uh, and prepared to make a cash offer for the company. In fact, that was accepted. It was approved by shareholders back in December last year, a cash offer of 
870p. And then finally this week, we've heard that uh, regulatory approvals uh, have now been received. Uh, and that means that the scheme will become effective on the 15th of March. So the last trading day for this one will be on the 12th of March. Uh, payments expected 14 days uh, thereafter. So again, to the point you made earlier, these things just do take some time. Uh, this is a deal that was approved by shareholders back in December, and it won't be till the back end of March until they finally get their cash. Yes, the wheels do move quite slowly sometimes, uh, as indeed we've noted on occasions. Let's move on then to a more positive story, perhaps, and this is uh, the developments at Keystone Investment Trust, KIT, which is going to move to Bailey Gifford, are going to take over the management, the, the hot hands of the day. Um, what's, the, what's the news there? Yeah, that's right. So this has now become effective this week, effectively. Um, back in December, uh, it was announced the board um, were minded to appoint Bailey Gifford and change Investment Trust investment objective. And just to remind people, this was part of the Invesco uh, stable. It had been run by Mark Barnett back in the day. He, he won this one from Merrill Lynch back in the early noughties. But uh, in recent years, performance had become an issue in common with a lot of those uh, Invesco funds. The board had a strategic review. They decided it was uh, worth changing a mandate and adopt a sustainable uh, investment approach. Uh, a beauty parade ensued and Bailey Gifford uh, ended up on top. So that has now moved to Bailey Gifford. The fund is actually going to change its name. It will become the Keystone Positive Change Investment Trust. Its tickers already changed to KPC, reflecting that. But uh, as noted, actually, there is a delay with Companies House at the moment in terms of getting name changes through. So that will take a little bit of time. But uh, effectively, Bailey Gifford have got their hands on this one. Uh, so it will be invested in global equities, probably a uh, between 30 and 60 holdings. It will have an element of uh, private companies in there as well. Uh, Kate Fox and Lee Kuang are responsible for this portfolio. And actually, they run an equivalent uh, open-ended fund, though the open-ended fund doesn't invest in private companies. Uh, and they've generated a very strong performance track record on this one. But it's an interesting mandate. Uh, I mean, it has a dual mandate. So it's seeking to outperform the MSCI or country world indexed by 2% per annum over a five-year rolling period, but it's actually looking to contribute towards a more sustainable and inclusive world. And that's a very uh, key part of the objective. It is effectively a dual objective. So an interesting development within the investment trust world. Yes. And I think keeping to the uh, general idea that what we want to see in the investment trust sector is uh, managers who come along who have open-ended funds offering something distinctive here. And uh, that seems to be the case here where they will be looking at private companies as well as publicly listed companies, which the open-ended fund, as you say, cannot do. I would have thought the combination of the Bailey Gifford name and this rather kind of trendy or, should I say, desirable positive change theme. It is very popular, as we know, with investors or increasingly popular. Every fund management firm worth its salt is trying to get into this area. I imagine that would prove quite popular. I mean, the shares already come in, I think, quite a long way. What's, what's been happening to the, uh, the, the discount on this one? And how do you think it'll be received? It's a really interesting question. And, uh, you know, invariably when we see uh, investment manager changes, uh, I mean, take something like an Edinburgh Investment Trust uh, as an example. That was on a double-digit discount. You see a bit of buying activity, but it's still out on a 9-10% discount, even though there's a new management team there and there's some positive signs coming through in terms of performance. In this particular instance uh, with Keystone, 
Uh, as mentioned, it was back in December that the board announced uh, proposals for a change, only approved this week at a, a general meeting. But the investment trust was re-rated in advance of that change. So we saw it move from a, a double-digit discount into, a, I think it was 2% discount at the time that Bailey Gifford actually assumed responsibilities for it. So the share price moved ahead of the uh, of their actual appointment. Um, it's hard to think of too many investment managers that would have a, a similar reaction. Uh, I mean, it really would be a case going back in time of like a kind of Anthony Bolton or Neil Woodford when he was at his peak. It's that kind of reaction uh, representing very strong retail following. But you're right, it's a it's a, a mandate that's really in vogue at the moment. I mean, everyone's talking about sustainable investment and actually what does it mean? Uh, I mean, the Bailey Gifford team uh, are very interesting as one would expect on the subject and, and are quite clear what they're trying to achieve. Uh, in terms of the, the businesses that they're backing. And I think it's a, an investment strategy, just talking in broad terms now, that's going to develop over the years. I think there's a huge amount of discussion about ESG and what does that mean? Um, but I think sustainable investing is one that I think will capture people's imagination in time. Yes, you would think it would certainly be popular, whether it uh, can deliver those results uh, or whether that focus on sustainability actually does lead to higher returns is, of course, the big unknown or the question that we are still arguing about. Okay, so let's move on and talk about another little uh, interesting, I don't know if it's a sideshow, not for the people involved. This is what the situation at Strategic Equity Capital. It is very dissimilar to uh, Gabelli Value Plus Plus, but there are some issues around the uh, the future of this trust. A really interesting development this week, actually, and it, it's probably a little bit premature to say exactly what it means. So just the, the facts are these, that the board of Strategic Equity Capital has received a request to requisition a general meeting from two shareholders, Ian Armitage and Jonathan Morgan. And together, they represent about 7.7% of the the fund's issued share capital. So a a meaningful slug. Uh, The proposed resolutions relate to the continuation of the fund, and the board is reviewing the request uh, and obviously intends to speak to the two shareholders uh, in questions, and there will be a further announcement uh, in due course. But um, a very interesting, what does it mean? Well, just to remind people, strategic equity capital uh, is in the UK small cap space. It has what could be described as a kind of private equity mindset to investing in public markets. Uh, There are a couple of funds that have a similar approach. Uh, It moved to Gresham House last year from GVQ. And actually, Jonathan Morgan uh, was was part of the GVQ team. And Ian Armitage, who'll be well known to a number of people, actually, he was involved in HG Capital Trust for many years a very respected uh, investor, private equity investor. Uh, he's been involved in a number of businesses subsequently. He's also the chairman of Edisian Capital as well. But really interesting to see how this one plays out. It's quite a concentrated shareholder register at the top end. There's, um, I, I think, three shareholders or uh, institutional shareholders represent about 30% of the share capital. So one suspects they will have uh, quite a, a key say in, in how this plays out. Yes, and I think it's worth adding, is it not, that... Uh the manager of Strategic Equity Capital, Stuart Widdison, two or three years ago started his own, this Odyssean Investment Trust, which is backed by Ian Armitage. And Stuart Widdison used to work for Ian Armitage at HG Capital. Uh, so they know each other very well. And that's why Ian Armitage, I think, took his stake in Strategic Equity Capital, because he liked Stuart Widdison, the manager. And now that he's moved on, uh, I guess he's not particularly happy being uh, being left there with a with a five percent or whatever it is shareholding he has, so that is interesting. Yes, it's interesting to see how it plays out. Um, I mean, how big is strategic equity capital now, and uh, you know how has it been performing uh, in the market as well as uh, in terms of NAV and so on? 
you know, so in terms of assets, it's uh, it's a reasonable size. It's not too far off 190 million. Um, it's trading on a bit of a discount, so its market cap is near to about 160 million. In the last 12 months, it's probably averaged a 19% discount or so. Um, it's currently on about a 14% discount. So when this news popped up, uh, the share price did have a bit, a bit of a run and it's um, given back a little bit since. But certainly, if you compare that discount of 14% to the wider UK small cap peer group, it's, it's, it is wider. Probably the average is, is nearer to 10 uh, or certainly lower than 10 at the moment. So it has traded on a wider discount. And in terms of its performance numbers as well, Though not disastrous by any means, certainly over the last year, it's lagged a little bit, probably broadly in line with the FTSE small cap over three years. Um, and actually, uh, over the long term, again, five years, probably in line with the FTSE small cap. But as I say, the, the, the shareholder base is quite concentrated at the top end. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of few more value orientated investors there. They, they may welcome um, some form of liquidity event, but we'll, we'll see how this one plays out. Yes. And as we said, it probably won't be as marked as with uh, Keystone, but the... Uh... You'd expect that the market price to discount if if the market decides that this is going to go through, for whatever reason, then you depending what the board comes up with, uh, you would expect that maybe the discount to come in a little bit as well, maybe. But as you say, we don't know how that's going to play out. So we'll have one to watch. Always fun to watch these special situations, as we call them, play out. Okay, so let's move on and talk about fundraising. We've said markets are hot. Good time to raise money if you're in the right part neck of the woods, as far as the market's concerned. And in recent uh, weeks, it's all been about... Uh, uh, infrastructure and renewable energy, mostly, and our friends at uh, Hypnosis, of course. Uh, so let's start with uh, Greencoat UK Wind, which is, as as you've often pointed out, one of the oldest, most mature, if you like, of the renewable energy trusts. What are they about to do? Yeah, so they announced this week that they're looking to raise up to £198 million uh, pounds via a placing at a price of 131p per share. Uh, and that represents a discount of 2% to the, the closing price before the announcement and about a 9% premium to the NAV uh, as at the end of last year. So uh, again, just to remind people, as you rightly said, Brinkert UK Wind has been going down for a number of years. They've been very successful in deploying capital and coming back to the market and raising additional capital. So last year, for instance, uh, in October, they raised £400 million in a placing, which was the largest single uh, fundraising that we saw last year. So it'd be interesting to see how this one goes. Um, what they're going to do with the, the, the money that they raise, well, they'll look to uh, repay or at least reduce their, their borrowing levels. And this is quite well-trodden ground for the renewable infrastructure funds. And effectively, they use their uh, gearing facility to uh, invest and then periodically return to the market and raise additional capital and bring that gearing down. Um, and so that gearing level is expected to be about 28% of gross assets, uh, of which are quite a high 700 million or so is in fixed rate term debt. But the placing closes on the 16th of February, so we'll know pretty soon how they get on. We do know how the SDCL Energy Efficiency Income Trust, uh, which we talked about last week, uh, looking to raise more money. And uh, how did they get on? They've closed that particular fundraising exercise. Yeah, they did very well. So they were looking to raise 100 million and they came in at 160 million. Uh, and so that was obviously an oversubscribed placing. That was at 106p, uh, which represented about a 4% premium to their NAV. Uh, and those new shares will start trading on the 16th of February as well. So, uh, yeah, no positive story there. And again, um, I think we talked about this last week, actually, it only launched at the back end of 2018 when they, uh, you know, they struggled to kind of get to 100 million, to be honest. Uh, and now they're already a you know, 560, 570 million market cap. This is obviously an additional 160 million. So they're, they're really pushing on. They're making um, progress 
uh, in terms of deploying that uh, capital. And they've got a, a strong pipeline, uh, both what they describe as organic investments and new acquisitions opportunities exceeding 200 million. So they're certainly seeing the opportunities to, to get the money to work. So this is another story of how at least if you can get the IPO away and then you have an opportunity to raise more money subsequently, uh, it need not be a total disaster if you don't always raise as much as you uh, originally anticipated. Also, we heard from Warehouse, uh, REIT, they had a placing. We talked about that last week as well, I think. And uh, how did they get on? That's another successful placing. They raised gross proceeds of £46 million, uh, and that was a viral placing at 121p per share. And that was a 2% premium to their effectively their NAV, their property NAV, as at the end of September, a 4% discount to their closing price uh, early on in February at the time they announced it. So again, uh, yet another example of uh, an investment company uh, raising additional capital and deploying that. Uh, they've, they've got a number of uh, properties lined up, including two adjacent uh, distribution warehouses in Harlow, and they've got a couple of other further assets as well. Um, so uh, yes, making progress on that front. Okay, and now let's talk about Target Healthcare REIT, another uh, good area to be in at the moment. Healthcare has obviously been a good growth sector and uh, continues to be popular in the investment trust world. What's the story of Target Healthcare? So they're looking to raise about £50 million or so via a placing at 111p per share, uh, and that represents a 5% discount to their share price on the 11th of February, just ahead of when they made the announcement, but a 3% premium to their latest uh, EPRA NAV. So again, they've got a pipeline, they've identified a pipeline that's valued at £224 million, and there's various elements to that. But uh, that's one of the key things with these placings. Actually, we've talked before about the difference between placings and C-shares. But if you're going to raise money effectively by issuing ordinary shares, you've got to be quite careful not to dilute down uh, the ordinary shareholders, the existing shareholders. So to have the pipeline ready to go is very important. Now, one way of doing that was obviously borrowing and making the investment and in, in using your facility. So you're doing it on debt and then coming back to the marketplace and raising cash, or you have the pipeline ready to go. And that sounds like the case with Target Healthcare. And just to remind people, it's a portfolio of purpose-built care homes uh, across the UK. And then we come back to our friend Hypnosis Songs. I mean, hardly a week passes without us discussing this one. And uh, this has been interesting because we talked last week about uh, their latest effort to raise money, the placing, and we speculated whether there would be a limit to the amount of demand given how much equity they've raised in the last few months. I think this is their third bite at the cherry since last summer. And in the event, they put out an announcement, actually, it was at the end of last week, after while we were recording this, I think, uh, that uh, the results were a little bit disappointing. Well, you, you always look out for the announcements that try to be slipped out on a Friday afternoon at about 4.35 o'clock. They're probably the ones that people don't necessarily want you to read. But no, you're right. They raised uh, £75 million pounds, uh, at a price of 121p per share. That was for replacing. And uh, just to put that uh, in, in comparison to their efforts last year in July, they raised £236 million. Pounds, and in September, they raised £190 million. Pounds. So obviously, uh, substantially less. They were obviously at a higher share price. So uh, one, one suspects they'll be uh, a little bit disappointed by that. I mean, the, the investment team have talked about the extent of the, the pipeline uh, of investment opportunities that they see, and, and that seems relatively limitless uh, at this stage. And to be fair, they have been able to deploy capital in, in quite quick time. Uh, but obviously, 75 million will, one suspects, be a little bit less than they would have hoped from, from this latest placing. 
So I guess that prompts us to have a look at what's uh, happening in the market then. They've obviously, as you say, raised this money. and uh, uh, But what's happened to the discount then? And how is that comparing to their competitor, Round Hill Music Royalty, which is, listeners will recall, came to the market more recently. And uh, in some observers' view, they're providing better disclosure, if you like, about the nature of the assets they own. That's one of the issues for hypnosis that is being talked about in the market. And uh, so how are they how are they performing these two now in the same peer group? So hypnosis, just bearing in mind the latest placing was at 121p. So the share price has softened a little since then. Um, it closed the week at 119p, so 2p off that placing price. But you know, to be honest, it's it's you know you always see a little bit of share price uh, fluctuations. I, I wouldn't get too caught up in that necessarily, but uh, it's it probably around the operating NAV, operative NAV uh, on that particular investment company. Uh, in comparison, Roundhill Music Royalty, um, the premium rating is holding up a little bit better. Uh, it's probably trading on about a 7% premium or so. Uh, again, to be fair, it's still very early days for that particular investment company. Obviously, it got launched towards the end of last year. Uh, but it, it's it's trading in positive territory, certainly from the launch price of about a dollar and five cents. Well, as we said, competition is always good. And uh, I'm sure it'll be good for, for both companies to have the competition there. It will give us something else to benchmark their performance again. I should say, I think the interesting issue is around the disclosure here, because Roundhill have obviously taken a deliberate decision to provide much more detail about the, the kind of prices they paid and the kind of returns they're expecting from the catalogs that they've been buying. Uh, so it will be interesting to watch that as, as time goes by. I'm sure that'll give you and your analyst colleagues something to get their teeth into over the next uh, few weeks, Simon. Finally, uh, let's just quickly talk about uh, Martin Curry Global Portfolio. Um, I think they're looking to issue some more shares, but this is really about seeking approval from shareholders. What have they been saying? No, that's right. So this week, uh, they, they came out and uh, exactly that. They're looking to publish a circular uh, to seek approval from shareholders in an EGM, uh, basically to allow them to issue more shares. So last year, Shareholders were kind enough to give them the authority to issue up to 4.2 million shares, which represented 5% of the shares in issue at that date. And since then, they've issued 4.1 million shares. And I think that reflects that actually the manager there, Cedric Osmani, has done a good job for shareholders. He has a, a growth uh, investment style, concentrated quality growth portfolio. Um, and that also that investment trust pursues a zero discount policy as well. So um, they're quite keen to keep the rating around NAV. So uh, effectively asking shareholders permission to keep that issuance program going. Let's move on then to results, move on from fundraising to results. And we've got a couple of interesting uh, trusts from the UK uh, equity sectors to look at. And the first of those is BlackRock Throgmorton, THRG, uh, which I think, as we discussed before, has been going through a pretty strong period of performance, despite being invested in the UK market, which has been uh, lagging many other parts of the world, at least until the last few weeks. So what have they had to say, uh, Simon? So they had their annual results out for the year to the end of November and uh, a pretty decent period, actually. The NAV total return was up uh, just over 9% and that compared with a rise of about 4% for the benchmark. The share price total return was up about 8% uh, as the premium just narrowed uh, a little bit. But uh, as you say, it's a good story, Dan. Whitestone has been the manager of this one since March 2015, uh, and it's a UK small cap fund. And uh, you know he's a, he is a very good stock picker, as his numbers would seem to suggest. So in this particular period, uh, Games Workshop uh, performed very well for him, as did UGARV Impacts Asset Management, and actually a number of uh, international holdings. It's allowed to 
BlackRock, Frogmorton Trust allowed to have a number of international holdings and uh, three of the top 10 performers were actually overseas holdings. There's always a, f- a few that don't go quite so well and, and clearly having names such as WH Smith, Jet2 and JD Weatherspoon in this particular year uh, were always likely to detract. But the long-term performance record of this investment trust is strong. So over the last five years, in any of the total return turned it's up 145%. Uh, and that compares with the, the FTSE small caps rise of about 58% over the same period. Um, and in that UK small cap peer group, of which there are actually some very strong performers, BlackRock Throgmorton Trust is the, is the strongest. And it's reflected in the fact that it's trading on a 2% premium um, and has been able to issue shares as well. Yes, which, as we said before, is relatively unusual in the small cap sector. I mean, one of the factors here is that, am I right in saying that BlackRock does use uh, gearing? Uh, They also have the ability to do some shorting in the market, which makes them distinctive, though I think they don't have much of a short position at the moment. I mean, this is interesting. There's always this issue about how much gearing should equity investment trusts have, and there's a wide range of experience. But clearly, uh, that's been helping to boost their performance over time, has it not? You're right. This uh, investment trust has been differentiated by the fact that it has a short portfolio. Uh, so it has a portfolio of shorts um, using CFDs. And I think it's added value over the years and equally that the fact they've been able to deploy gearing as well. But I think over the long term, it, it would be wrong to dismiss BlackRock from Morton Trust as just a kind of geared play on the UK small cap space. It is, it's really driven by the stock selection. Um, and that the team at BlackRock, the smaller companies team there, um, have generated good outperformance over a number of years. Uh, and uh, you know, Dan and, and some of his colleagues have, have developed very, very strong records. Indeed, they have. And another UK equity trust, which uh, is not quite in the same sector, but also uses gearing to good effect uh, in rising markets at least, is Henderson Opportunities Trust, HOT. Uh, have they been hot or not? <laughs> well, they had their annual results out to the end of October. Uh, the NAV total return was down 8% in that time, and that compared with a fall of 19% for their benchmark, and in fact, 13% decline for their peer group. So in those terms, in relative terms, uh, they were hot. The share price was actually down uh, only 2% as the discount narrowed from about 20% to 15%, so still quite a wide discount. It's an interesting portfolio, this one. So it's James Henderson and Laura Fall of uh, Janice Henderson. And there's always quite a, a high weighting to uh, mid and small cap companies. Um, so they, it's an all cap portfolio. So you, you will see some larger names uh, in there. But then they also have quite heavy weightings to um, areas such as early stage companies, uh, growth small cap, recovery plays, special situations. And uh, as I said, it's a real stock pickers portfolio. I I seem to remember when James Henderson uh, got his hands on this one. It used to be called Stratum, Henderson Stratum, many years ago. We we labelled it as uh, James Henderson Unconstrained, uh, which probably raised a few eyebrows. But in relative terms, not a bad year in difficult circumstances. And over the longer term, over the last five years, uh, this Henderson opportunity has generated a NAV total return of 95%. And that compares to a rise of 47% for the FTSE All Share. Yes, a couple of comments on that. I mean, having met James Henderson, I, I do know him a little bit. The idea of him running wild is quite an interesting and amusing idea, since he's a very charming, mild, uh, mild-mannered anyway uh, uh, man. I don't know what he's like uh, behind an office door, but anyway, <laughs> the idea of him running wild is, amuses me anyway. Uh, and secondly, of course, it, this, this rather shows the effect of timing, you know, the, the timing of your calendar year. So the difference between having your annual results to the 31st of October and, and to, the, say, the 31st of December 
would be quite marked in terms of because the market was being run so strongly in the last couple of months of the year, November and December, you uh, you may find that there's some disparity in the performance, which is uh, really just down to the timing of your of your year end, and also how quickly you get your results out, of course, whether that is noticed or not. So let's move on and catch up with uh, some results, but also um, an, another sort of corporate development, manager development at uh, Invesco. Uh, perhaps you can give us the story on these two trusts, as they are, in fact, uh, which are coming together, I think. Well, that's right. So Invesco Perpetual Select uh, published its interim results to the end of November uh, this week. Uh, and again, just to remind people, it has a number of different uh, share classes. So there's a UK equity portfolio, there's a global equity income share class, there's a balanced risk allocation, uh, and there's a managed liquidity portfolio as well. This is probably within the Invesco uh, Investment Trust Stable. This is probably one that had a, a lower profile, but this is set to change because, as you mentioned, we learned towards the end of last year that Invesco income growth would look to merge into the UK equity leg of Invesco Perpetual Select. So that deal um, has, has not come to fruition yet. There will be, have to be votes and, and various other things for it to be executed. But we did learn this week that uh, Kieran Mallon, who is the manager, the existing manager of Invesco Income Growth, uh, will be moving over to take responsibility for the UK equity leg, but actually the incumbent manager, James Goldstone, will um, also work alongside him. And actually, James and Kieran um, are now responsible for a number of the uh, open-ended funds within the Invesco stable as well. So that would seem to make sense. Yes. I mean, do you think there's any significance in the fact that it's taken until now for them to come up with this announcement about the, the, the co-management, as it were, of this trust? Or is it just kind of housekeeping, do you think? Has there been some pressure from somebody to, uh, to make this change? Or is it just uh, more of a kind of domestic matter? I don't know is the simple answer. I'd like to think it's just more housekeeping and domestic. I mean, uh, James and Kieran have been colleagues for a, a number of years and effectively they are heading up the UK equity team there. I mean, clearly the Invesco stable has been hit very, very hard now over the last few years uh, and they've lost a lot of funds under management. And clearly Kieran and uh, James have kind of got their work cut out, uh, stabilising performance uh, and establishing their own track record as, as effectively the head of the team. They've already got track records in their own rights as fund managers. So the fact that they're responsible for this, my gut feeling is that it, it seems to make sense. It's in line with what they've been doing on their open-ended funds. Right. And then just finally on this one, we've talked about this before. I mean, when these proposals and things are all finished, uh, what's going to happen to the to the trust? Do you think it has got a future? I mean, it's obviously bulked up a little bit by putting these two together. Um, but they're going to need to produce some good performance, I guess, uh, fairly quickly to to sustain that. Is that right? Is that fair? Or is that just being rather peevish on my part? Well, I think it's fair to say that there is a lot of scrutiny over Invesco. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of media interest in, in terms of the reorganisation there. Um, and, and clearly, they have to demonstrate that they can turn performance around, that they can deliver uh, attractive numbers versus the, the wider UK marketplace. And they can actually grow the dividend on the investment trust, so being the, the UK equity leg of Invesco Perpetual Select. I mean, Select is, a, is an interesting vehicle in its own right because of these four different share classes that it's got and the ability of shareholders to switch between the different share classes or the different legs on a tax-efficient basis. So at one stage, there were a number of investment trusts that had similar structures, and this is one of the few remaining bonds. Um, so if Invesco could get it to work for them, um, it would certainly be differentiated. Yes, I mean, the question there, I suppose, is whether that kind of flexibility, optionality, if you like, is actually something that uh, certainly, I guess, uh, many individual investors would not be 
particularly au fait with doing that or well prepared to do that or able to time that. So you would think that it would appeal more to some kind of more, dare I say, sophisticated or perhaps I should just say institutional investors <laughs> than, uh, than, than individual investors. Is, is that a fair comment or is that, again, just being rather peevish on my part? I would not accuse you of being peevish at all. No, I think it is a fair comment, actually. I mean, as I said, there were a number of investment trusts that had similar structures going back in, in the day. And I think the reality is that the, the the type of investor that would look to switch between different legs uh, was relatively limited outside of institutional investors who were looking to take advantage of, of differences in discounts or ratings. Um, I think the reality is that um, a lot of people now, a lot of private investors, retail investors, have their investments through tax-efficient wrappers such as ICES or SIPs or whatever it might be. So to give them a tax advantage in terms of switching between uh, different share classes is probably less valid, frankly. But as I said, it is uh, a differentiated structure and, and clearly it has become very important to, to invest in terms of their investment trust stable. I mean, you know, going back 13, 14 months, they had six UK-focused investment trusts with aggregate assets of over $3 billion. Uh, and now, when Invesco Income Growth rolls into the UK leg of Select, uh, they'll be down to effectively two and about 350, 360 million pounds of assets. So this Select suddenly becomes quite important to them. Yes, and uh, however peevish I might be, uh, I would not like to see Invesco suffer just because their style has been out of favour for so long, which it has been. And uh, who knows, that may well change in the coming years. Indeed, there's some signs of rotation already. So never want to lose a fund management firm out of the sector if it's uh, providing some variety and uh, optionality in that sense to investors. So that's fingers crossed for them. Okay, let's move on to some overseas trusts now. And let's start off with BlackRock North American Income, BRNA. They've had some annual results. And uh, how have they been doing? Yeah, it's been a tough year for BlackRock North American Income. Uh, they had an NAV total return uh, it was negative in the year to 31st of October. It was down 9%. Um, that compared with a fall of 8% for the Russell 1000 value index. But actually, in share price total return terms, they were down 18%. So uh, a bit of a derating in that period, which obviously harmed their performance. I mean, underperformance was due to stock selection. And also, it's worth noting that, as the name would suggest, it does have a, a, an income element to uh, what it's trying to generate this particular investment trust. And one of the ways that they do this is via option writing. So they write what are called covered call options. Um, and unfortunately, that detracted uh, from performance uh, in the period. Effectively, you're giving up some potential gains. So it probably worked quite well for them back in March uh, but as the market rallied, uh, as the year progressed, uh, they would have given up some upside there. So a tough period. However, um, on that income uh, side, the revenue per share was actually up uh, 12% uh, in the period, which is not a, a bad effort in that particular year. And dividends were actually maintained at 8p per share. Uh, and the board is prepared to continue with the current dividend policy for the current now financial year. Okay, well, that's uh, it's a tough market, and if you're a value, a value investor in North America at the moment, that's not been a good place to be, obviously, in recent times. Let's move on and talk about another investment trust, Scottish American, or Saints as it's known. But this is not, despite its name, it's not a, a trust that invests in uh, North America uh, solely. It's a global trust, is it not? It is indeed, and it's uh, part of the, the Bailey Gifford stable. It's a global equity income fund. Uh, so the dividend is a key part of the story. But yeah, they announced uh, annual results for the year to 31st of December, actually. So um, give them some credit here. I think they're the first mainstream investment trust company to get their results out for the, the calendar year of 2020. 
Um, and it was a pretty decent period for them. They had an NAV total return of nearly 15% or so, and that compared with a rise of 13% for the index. In share price total return terms, uh, they were up about 12%. But the, the portfolio is an interesting one. The vast bulk of it is in the equity portfolio, which actually uh, was up 16% or so in the year. But they've also got a, a UK property portfolio as well, a very long-standing uh, UK property portfolio. And you might think that that might have given them a few issues this year, but actually it generated a total return of uh, 7%, just short of 7% in the year. Most of that was through uh, rental income. And I think they were quite pleased with how that performed. And what that meant in terms of the uh, earnings per share, it was down for the year or year on year, it was down, but only 4%, uh, which to be honest, I think is quite an impressive uh, effort given obviously dividend cuts across uh, global markets, probably 15 to 20% uh, would not be uncommon across, uh, I would suspect most global equity income mandates. So to be down only 4% would be a good result. And what that's meant is that the uh, board have been prepared to increase the total dividend up to 12p for the year. And that's actually an increase of 1.1% and represents the 41st year of consecutive increases. So a decent set of results. And as I say, quite impressive to get their calendar year 2020 results out relatively quickly. Indeed. Well, I guess one could also say that uh, for a Bailey Gifford Trust only to produce an NAV total return of 14% is pretty low, but that just <laughs> compared to some of the other trusts, which have been turning in 100% or 85% or whatever it is. But of course, it's a completely different approach. It is an income fund, uh, an equity income fund, and a global equity income fund. And uh, how, has it, uh, how has it been trading? I mean, it hasn't been a Bailey Gifford Trust forever, has it? Off the top of my head, I'm going to tell you, it, it hasn't been forever, but Bailey Gifford were appointed, I'm going to say in 2004. It might even be a year earlier than that, but I think it was the start of 2004 it moved across to Bailey Gifford. So quite a few years now, but you make a good point in terms of the, the performance. I mean, they talk in the investment manager's report about how three of the five detractors to performance in the period were all technology stocks. So Tesla and Amazon, not owned by this portfolio because, uh, funnily enough, they don't pay dividends. And so it doesn't work for this mandate. And also uh, Saints is underweight Apple. Uh, again, which proved to be a, a bit of a detraction as well. So given that, given those kind of natural headwinds, they seem to do uh, quite well elsewhere, particularly some of the Asian stocks did uh, very well for them. Yes. Okay. So Scottish American was originally founded in 1873. So when I was using recent, I was using in a, in a kind of, uh, in context, it's quite recent, but not uh, not in other senses, of course. Compared with the global equity income, it's not a particularly big sector, the global equity income. Um, we know that uh, there's one or two big funds in there. Uh, there's a big Aberdeen fund in there. Murray International, what, uh, how, does it, how does it stand in the sector and what's been the sector been doing basically in recent months? Yeah. yeah, no, you make a good point, actually. I mean, given the advantages that investment trusts, investment trust companies have in terms of providing greater dividend certainty, um, you might have expected there to be more names in the global equity income space. There certainly is in the UK equity income space. But at the moment, we do have um, seven investment trusts. Murray International, uh, managed by Bruce Stout to Aberdeen Standard Investments, is, is the largest. But Scottish American is a decent size. It's got a market cap of around about 780 million market cap. Uh, and it's traded consistently on a premium for some time now. So probably on about a 3% premium uh, in line with its average over the previous 12 months. The one thing is probably worth noting that uh, as a function of its success, uh, and, and just to put some numbers on that, the NAV total return over five years is 124%. Uh, 
and that will be ahead of uh, its peers. I mean, probably the peer group is averaging about 90%, but it's seen its dividend uh, contracts, even though it's got this record of 41 years of consecutive increases, it's uh, on a historic basis, it's yielding about 2.5% at the moment. And so it's at the lower end of the yields that we see in the global equity income space, probably the highest at the moment. Uh, well, certainly Murray International's 4.8% at the moment. Uh, Majedi uh, is on a 5%, but then that reflects the, the fact that it's on about a 20% discount. But a very interesting peer group. And I think there has been a move away in general uh, for people looking for income from uh, equities and move away from the UK in recent years. And, and clearly global equity income has been one of the destinations for them. I think the final point I was going to make on that one is that I think their portfolio is managed by Olim, is it not, who are also the, the people behind uh, Value and Income Trust? Is that not correct? Am I right about that? You are absolutely right that it is managed by Olim. And uh, yes, it's a, it's an interesting property portfolio, actually. They've moved away from retail and restaurants uh, over the last few years uh, into more focus on alternative properties, so nursing homes, data centres and caravan parks. Uh, one suspects the decision to move uh, away from retail and restaurants was greeted with uh, applause, certainly last year. Yeah, that sounds like a shrewd move, obviously enough. Okay, so we promised last week that we'd have a quick review, if you like, of the recent announcements in the property sector, commercial property sector. So this week you've uh, been looking at that, Simon, you produced a useful note that summarizes the story with the latest, uh, most of these property trusts, I think, have been producing a sort of end of year NAVs. What story can you take away from the look you've been having at this particular sector? Yeah, it's a very interesting insight into really the whole business backdrop of the UK at the moment. Uh, I mean, there are various positive signs, to be perfectly honest. So what we've seen uh, in the recent weeks uh, are updates, as you correctly say, for the fourth quarter of last year. So basically the position as at the end of December. And performance is polarised. So town centre retail and leisure, uh, unsurprisingly, remains under uh, considerable pressure. Offices are also experiencing weaknesses. And obviously, intuitively, this all makes sense. Conversely, industrial and distribution assets have been performing strongly. So what does that mean in terms of the UK diversified commercial property funds? Well, most of them, in fact, all but one, saw their NAVs recover in the fourth quarter of last year. Uh, Unfortunately, Edison Property Investment Company was the only one to experience a fall in its NAV, and that was down um, about one and a half, two percent or so. Uh, But conversely, some of them actually pushed on. So we saw Standard Life Investments property income up uh, just over 4%, BMO real estate investments up 3.5%. And there is a a bit of a correlation. So those investment companies that are underweight, uh, retail or shopping centres or whatever it might be, tend to be those that are performing well. uh, And obviously, the reverse is true as well. But what has also been a factor and, and possibly even more important than property valuations is how they're all faring in terms of rent collection, because clearly there is a very strong correlation between rent collection and the dividends that they are prepared to pay back to their shareholders. And again, the story is reasonably positive in this regard. So a number have announced increased dividend rates over the last few months, although many of them are still lower than the kind of pre-COVID levels. But uh, you know, funds such as BMO Commercial Property Trust, BMO Real Estate Investments, Custodian REIT, uh, and a number of others have actually been able to kind of march their dividends back up. It's not all plain sailing, though. So we've seen a few still still struggling a little bit on, on the dividend front. And alternative income REIT 
had to cut its dividend further for the for the final quarter of last year, um, and that reflects its exposure to the hotel and leisure industry during the uh, the national lockdown. So I guess one of the issues that arises from that is whether the changing outlook for you know the return to normal commercial life is if we have extended restrictions because of lockdown and the virus, whether that's going to affect uh, them going into this year. But if the picture is quite encouraging at the end of last year, presumably there's some hope that that will indeed persist into the current year. Has the discounts continue to narrow or have we seen that leveling off in uh, in the last few weeks uh, in response to these various announcements? There are still some very wide discounts in the UK commercial property area. So, you know, take a fund such as BMO Commercial Property. It's on a 39% discount at the moment. The average across the sector is tightened, that to be fair, probably around 20, 22%. Uh, and a number, a number have done very well. So LXI REIT, for instance, actually trading on a premium at the moment. And they've announced an increase to their dividend, which actually takes them uh, above the, uh, the coronavirus or the pre-coronavirus level. So there are some, uh, some that actually are faring very well. But yeah, big discounts uh, are certainly quite evident in the UK commercial property front. I think that reflects still that there is quite a lot of uncertainty. And really, one of the key things that people are unsure about at the moment is what happens when the government starts to withdraw business support. And then more importantly, possibly the moratorium protecting commercial tenants from eviction. And when that expires, which I think at the moment we're expecting to occur at the end of March. So what happens then? What happens to those tenants that haven't been able to pay their rents? Are we going to see a sharp increase in vacancies? Uh, is it going to be a case of um, some quite strong negotiations or some maybe some sympathetic negotiations? So I think though there are a number of investment managers in this space that are going to be kept quite busy this year. I think that's probably true to say. Very good. Well, that's something else to add to our list of things to watch in the coming weeks. That's what makes it so fascinating. There's always these different uh, tides and trends going on in the market. We've seen quite a long, a strong uh, increase in commodities recently, and that has led to questions about whether or not we're going to see a return to inflation or not. We've seen the Bank of England, uh, Andy Holding, coming out this week and saying that he's expecting the recovery to be pretty sharp and, and sweet, and we'll have to wait and see whether that's the case as well. So there's plenty of opportunities out there, I guess, for those who can read those runes. But for the meantime, we're going to leave it there. And uh, thank you, Simon. We've covered the waterfront as usual. And uh, we're interested to see if how these latest fundraisings go. So thanks a lot. And we'll talk again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. The website also has details of how to join the Moneymakers Circle, our premium content subscription service, offering more interviews, portfolio updates, and market commentary. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.